Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday to all of you. I am so glad to be with you today. It is bright and sunny here in Southern California. I hope that you are doing well by God's grace, and I'm excited to bring you this conversation today. We have been talking now and then about uh, topics interconnected to The Chosen. Um, When I first started making posts about The Chosen back in January, uh, many of you came on to my social media and expressed you know, strong opinions on both sides. I love The Chosen. I have strong concerns about The Chosen. So we've been slowly working our way through various topics uh, related to those conversations back uh, in January. So I do want to encourage you, if you're kind of jumping into this new, that's okay. You you will still benefit from this conversation today. You don't have to have previous conversations under your belt. But if you want to get the larger context of the discussions about The Chosen, just go check out the playlist on my channel at Theology Mom. I've been archiving all of those conversations there. And I do hope you are finding these helpful. And I look forward to your feedback. Now, I do want to let you know today that uh, this is a pre-recorded show. We're going to be talking to my very good friend and former colleague from Reasons to Believe, Kenneth Samples, and he is a theologian and philosopher and one of my mentors, and I'm super excited to have him on the show again to talk about the issue of Roman Catholicism. Now, even though we are pre-recorded, I do want to let you know that I will be monitoring the chat when the show premieres. So if you have questions, just go ahead and type those questions in the chat and I will address those during the premiere and um, help follow up with you about resources or whatever your questions are to the best of my ability. Also make sure that you are subscribed to the channel. Even if you've subscribed to the in the past, it's always good to go take a look. Sometimes um, big tech likes to make up your mind for you and unsubscribe. They've even unsubscribed me to my own channel. Um, but just go take a look and make sure that you are subscribed. You have that notifications bell on so that you'll get an alert whenever I post new content. Now, once again, we are talking about the the issue today of Roman Catholicism. And we've been asking the question, are Catholics Christians? This is might seem like a silly question to some of you. And to others, it might be a concerning question. That's okay. Um, in the previous teaching that I did, I talked about some points of commonality between us as Protestants and Catholics. And I want to continue that discussion today, but kind of turn the tables a little bit and talk about areas of differences, maybe areas of concern that we have as as Protestants that we have about our Roman Catholic friends and family. And I'm just going to restated again up front, we have a complicated relationship uh, between uh, our, our ourselves, whether, no matter what stripe of Protestant you are, whether you're a, a Baptist, a Charismatic, or a Presbyterian, 
um, you know, if you're in that stream of, of Protestantism and our Roman Catholic friends and family, we have a, a bit of a complex relationship. We're a little bit like we're in the same family, but we kind of look at each other as like third cousins. <laughs> you know, we, we're not really sure, you know, how close that connection is. They're sort of connected to me somewhere in the past. And um, I want to help us understand some of our common ground, but as well as some of the complexities and, and to be gracious with one another, to do our very best, to be accurate with one another when it comes to discussing our differences, to do it charitably. Um, and one of the ways that we can honor and respect each other is to try to do that accurately. And um, the person who has probably had more impact in my life than anyone else on trying to um, put forward those values is my friend, theologian and philosopher, Kenneth Samples, who I wanna welcome back. Glad to have you here, Ken. Krista, what a what a great time to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's well, a real it's good. Privilege. It's good to see you again. And um, we're kind of going back in in your history a little bit of your personal life and your research life. Maybe we should start off by sharing with people how you came to be involved in discussing and researching matters related to Roman Catholicism. Yeah, uh, well, it really relates to my family. Um, my parents were evangelicals. They lived most of their life in West Virginia, but uh, uh, in the mid-50s, they came out to California, out to the Los Angeles area. Uh, I was born in, uh, here in California, the only sibling, uh, the only child in my family to be born in California. And it, I think right around 1962, my parents converted to Roman Catholicism, which was quite a change uh, because they had been in what I would describe, you know, your kind of small evangelical type of church. But I think my father was impressed in World War II when he was uh, in Rome after the city had been liberated. So I was baptized as a four-year-old at St. Athanasius Parish in Long Beach, California. Uh, I didn't, I couldn't spell Athanasius in those days, and I didn't know who he was, but I've come to know who he is and write about him, and he's certainly one of my theological heroes, maybe uh, the most honored theologian within Christendom. Anyway, um, uh, unfortunately, I, my family kind of fell away from their, their Catholicism, from their Christianity, so I was uh, really kind of a nominal Catholic, uh, but about 20 years old, uh, there were issues, a uh, family crisis that came up in my life and various things. And I started thinking very seriously about God, about uh, who he is, where I belong. And so uh, I began attending church regularly, the Catholic Church uh, Holy Family Parish uh, in Artesia. And uh, I enjoyed that experience very much. Um, I thought for some time I might consider being a priest. However, I met a lovely young woman there in the parish uh, named Joan, who I subsequently married, and so the priesthood was not something I was going to follow through. And it also began a, a long period of studying the Bible, studying church history, 
Uh, part of that process was uh, getting to know one of my mentors, Walter Martin, who was the original Bible Answer Man and, uh, you know, the head of the Christian Research Institute. Well, I attended his course and uh, through my studies, through reflection, I decided to become an evangelical Protestant. And uh, fortunately, I uh, had a lot of help along the way. I, I finished my bachelor's degree at Concordia University, which is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod University. And I learned a lot about the Reformation, a lot about historic Christianity. And then I went to work for Walter Martin. Uh, and through CRI, um, I was uh, designated to write articles about Seventh-day Adventism and Roman Catholicism. I did that. Um, those articles led me for an opportunity to talk with both Adventist theologians and Catholic theologians. Uh, through Walter Martin, I met Father Mitchell Pacwa, who is a Jesuit priest and uh, one of the anchors at EWTN, uh, the Catholic uh, television station. and. Um, through that process, um, Mitch and I uh, debated and dialogued. I was involved in a, in a uh, debate in 1997 at Southern Methodist University, and there were thousands of people there. Uh, there were multiple debates. I was joined by my colleague Rob Bowman and others. Uh, Catholic uh, thinkers like Scott Hahn took, uh, took part in that. And uh, I also got to know Mark Brumley. Uh, Mark in those days was working for Catholic Answers, and Mark and I uh, had some dialogues and, and debates about Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, it's interesting, Mark now is the president of Ignatius Press, so I talk with him on occasion and we kind of go back and forth. So. Um, after that, uh, after I left uh, CRI, I remained very interested in the question of Protestants and Catholics. And of course, Christy, you know that my favorite Christian thinker outside of the biblical authors is St. Augustine. Um, Augustine is, in my mind, uh, a remarkable theologian, maybe the most influential theologian outside of the Apostle Paul. That's that's a lot to say, but I think you could make a case for it. And in many ways, uh, my interest in Augustine led me to keep thinking about Protestants and Catholics because, uh, you know, some people, um, uh, there are Protestant theologians who would say that Augustine may have influenced Protestants nearly as much as he influenced Catholics. And uh, in fact, a number of Protestant theologians, historians have suggested that one way of thinking about the Reformation is that it's a, it's a thought experiment in the mind of St. Augustine. And what they mean by that is, Augustine had a very strong view of the authority of the church uh, that came out of the Dantatus controversy. But Augustine also had a very strong view of grace that came out of the Pelagian controversy. And some have proposed that in some ways the Reformation is a debate uh, in the mind of St. Augustine. On one side, you have the Catholic uh, Church with its very high view of, the, of church authority. On the other hand, you have the Protestant reformers with their sola gratia, their view of salvation by grace. And that has always been intriguing to me, uh, having been a Catholic, having uh, become a Protestant. And of course, 
In my time, I have attended Lutheran and Reformed and Anglican churches. And interesting enough, the same creeds I recited as a young man in the Catholic Church, I have recited in, in those churches. So that's kind of the backdrop of my, my interest. Uh, and I, I love church history. I have a book, uh, Classic Christian Thinkers, where I look at nine Christian thinkers. Uh, some of them are Catholics, some are Orthodox, some are Protestant. So that's, that's a little bird's eye view. That's really good. And you've laid some good groundwork there for this conversation and just even touching on some of the areas of commonality between us as Protestants and Roman Catholics, because I think all too often it's almost as if we're two trees growing side by side when really, if we look back, um, we're on the same tree, you know, and, and we share a lot of kind of commonalities, historically speaking. So we don't want to give the impression as Protestants that uh, Martin Luther rolled out of bed and uh, invented Christianity and that nobody was a Christian prior to that. Uh, That would be a very truncated view of things. And you mentioned a couple of key thinkers, Augustine uh, in the West and Athanasius, revered both in in the East and the West. Um, So let's just continue to build on, you know, the historical context there of Martin Luther. You know, when we get to Luther, we're in the West. Catholicism is the primary form of Christianity. The East is kind of doing its own thing. Luther is coming out of Germany He's, he's a Catholic, um, but was his view from the beginning to break with the Roman Catholic Church and form his own entity? Was he trying to do that or was he trying to do something else? You know, what yeah. is the origin of being a Protestant? Yeah, uh, I like the way you've, you've framed that. Obviously, you have... Uh historic Christianity. And then in the 11th century, you have the great schism between the East and West. So you have the Catholic Church in the West, the Orthodox Church in the East. Then in the 16th century, there is a split within the Catholic Church. And right at the head is the person, Martin Luther. Um, I don't think that Luther at all, uh, his initial intention was to divide Uh, Christendom and to develop a third branch of uh, Christendom. Um, He had a spiritual crisis. Uh, The interesting story is he was caught in a thunderstorm and was frightened by it, as anybody would be, with the fury that nature can unleash. And he cried out, St. Anne, I'll become a monk if if you save me, if you rescue me. Uh, St. Anne is traditionally understood as to be the Virgin Mary's mother. So uh, uh, Luther was true to his word. He became an Augustinian monk. And I think in many ways he thought that that experience would uh, bring him uh, closer to God, that it would give his life greater peace and meaning. But when he was in uh, this Augustinian order, he began to have a spiritual crisis. He thought, yeah, look, I'm praying, I'm doing good works, I'm involved in the things, I'm confessing my sins, I'm involved 
in the various uh, practices uh, here in this order. But I I feel like there he had a a crisis. He didn't know whether uh, a loving God could really forgive him of his sins. Uh, there are stories that he spent hours in confession. Um, and he was always afraid that there was a sin he had not confessed. And so one of his uh, advisors, a man named Staupitz, said, you know what, Martin, I think what would be good for you is if you gave greater uh, attention to the Bible, to Scripture, uh, that may help you work through these issues. And of course, that was a, that was a big step. Out of that, uh, Luther began studying the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, particularly uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul. And uh, there was a controversy that arose at the time regarding indulgences. And uh, Luther came out and uh, set forth kind of an academic protest. You know, the the 95 Theses was not uh, meant as a a shot to start World War III was it was the way theologians would communicate, not unlike you and I might write articles for the Evangelical Theological Society and have debates back and forth. Uh, but this process began to go forward, and Luther uh, really was, I think, forced, uh, as well as I think that there was a confrontation between church authority and Luther. They wanted him to back down, and he would not. But later, uh, Luther developed stronger views, and out of those views came what I think are the core elements of the Reformation, uh, that Scripture is the supreme authority, uh, sola scriptura, the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice, uh, another view that it's right at the heart of the Reformation is the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, and so those two became pillars, and uh, Luther felt that he was forced uh, to go further, and then there was that break. And uh, many people, and I think I would describe it this way, that the Reformation was a tragic necessity. It was tragic because it split uh, the church again. But I think it was necessary because the issues were intractable. And uh, as you know, Krista, I think Catholics and Protestants have significant common ground. I remember talking with uh, John Jefferson Davis, who is a Presbyterian theologian um, uh, on the East Coast, and um, he at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, he said that he thought conservative Protestants might be able to accept 85% of what conservative Catholics affirmed. Well, we can debate the percentage, but that leaves that leaves the so-called 15%. And that 15% is, uh, it may prove to be intractable. Um, you know, is it possible to resolve those issues? Well, in later times, there is more of an ecumenism that's developed where Protestants and Catholics have dialogue. But that 15% is very significant, and we can't ignore it. Um, uh, I, I know you've talked about uh, similarities between Catholics and Protestants, the Trinity, the Incarnation, but that is kind of where we are with regard to the, the Reformation. And I, I think, and I, this is just a, a quick statement, Krista, 
I think to understand the spirit of Protestantism, you have to relate to, to Luther's spiritual crisis. You know, how, how can I find acceptance before God? Um, how do I know that I'm right? How do I know I've done enough, prayed enough, confessed enough, repented enough? How do I know that God will love me? I found it fascinating that uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, Pope Emeritus, who recently passed away, he was a German. He went to Germany and spoke in the Lutheran churches, and he said to the German churches, Luther's question of how am I, how, where am I at with God, that should be all of our questions. So I found that very interesting that uh, Ratzinger, Carl, he was Bishop Ratzinger, became Pope Benedict XVI, that Benedict XVI understood the differences in, in the Reformation and uh, made a point of, of bringing, bringing Luther forward. I think you're raising so many important points that, you know, just to, I think that some people are going to hear us talk about similarities between Protestants and Catholics, and that's going to be a point of concern for some, confusion for some, and sure. even probably a point of frustration for some. And, sure. um, you know, there is a lot of energy around uh, the things that divide us, and, and we don't want to minimize those things, but we want to ground the conversation at least first before we get into the differences of really understanding our common history, um, shared beliefs, and even, you know, when I talk to my conservative Roman Catholic friends, we have a lot in common. I mean, even just in terms of our our social um, beliefs and you know what we want how we vote and things that matter to us like the pro-life discussion so there are things that that we want to be honest about and not just villainize catholics uh because they're just not protestants right yeah so and and there are many topics that we could talk about of smaller differences i just want to focus on three of what i think are the most major differences between us as Catholics and Protestants. Let's I this one I think is what you were touching on with the discussion about Luther is the relationship between scripture and tradition. Yeah. I I think that there is kind of a straw man version of what Protestants believe. The Protestants don't believe in tradition at all. That we have no regard for mm. church history and we act like, you know, the, the first real Christians, I don't know, either came out of the Reformation or the Jesus movement in the 70s. Yeah. So, you know, um, there's there's that. And and but I, I think that we need to think about this. And this is one of I think one of the debates that you did that's still on YouTube connects yeah. to this discussion of scripture and tradition. So maybe help us think about that is yeah. what are Catholics saying the relationship is between scripture and tradition and how do we as classical protestants think about that yeah this morning i was uh, reviewing the catholic catechism and I, I i simply would encourage my protestant friends you know if you want to know what catholics believe uh you go to the catechism um and you know i was reading it and uh the catechism talks about scripture and it talks about uh, sacred tradition or apostolic tradition and um, 
I think the way of understanding it is they believe that the broader word of God consists of both the written scriptures and the oral apostolic traditions. Uh, in fact, it, it says here uh, in the Catechism, brief quotation, uh, as a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revelation, all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, but Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So I think it's fair to say that Catholics believe that the, the revelation of God comes in the written scriptures and also in the apostolic tradition, uh, not any, not just any tradition, but oral tradition that came, in their view, from the apostles. And that that equates with the Word of God. And then, of course, what is distinctive about the Catholic uh, view, as opposed to Protestants and the, and the Eastern Orthodox, is that the Church is the interpreter uh, of that revelation. Here again from the, the Catechism, again, Part 1, the Profession of Faith. The Catholic Catechism is available online. Uh, in, the, in a brief description, it says, the task of interpreting the Word of God, again, uh, Scripture as well as apostolic tradition, has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the Church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. So they have a very strong view of both Scripture. It is Scripture is the inspired Word of God. Uh, it is without error. Uh, they also believe that uh, they have an oral source of tradition that is on par uh, to some degree with Scripture, and uh, the magisterium is the one that would properly interpret that. That, of course, uh, stands in, in very sharp contrast to the Protestant position, which says, look, uh, tradition has value. Uh, tradition is important, and I would say as a Christian apologist and as a Christian debater and author who've talked with uh, secularists and cults and various other people, often tradition is extremely valuable. Um, but the Protestant position is that Scripture has no peer. Scripture is the supreme authority. When you think of the Latin sola scriptura, all, Scripture alone or only Scripture, that can kind of convey a misunderstanding. Uh, there, are, there are authorities. Uh, there is the authority of tradition. There is the authority of reason. There is the, the authority of uh, church practice. But Scripture is the final court of appeals. It's the, it is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice, and uh, thus sola scriptura, and it would imply things like uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. And so that is, I think, possibly the biggest difference between Catholics and Protestants, between uh, kind of a traditional uh, conservative Catholicism and a conservative or traditional Protestantism. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a topic that uh, I have debated uh, and dialogued. Uh, you mentioned my debate with Father Pacwa is on the web, and we go back and forth. And uh, my friend Mark Brumley and I have gone back and forth. But I, uh, I think that may, in fact, be um, uh, a a difference that is very strong and may not be resolvable. 
of course, uh, Jesus says in John 17, he prays for his church. He prays that uh, the church will be one as the Father and the Son are one. But yeah, that that uh, I think understanding the, the areas of agreement is very important. And I think that's the place to start. But this is an issue that's an enduring issue. And uh, um, and you even have some differences between Catholics and Orthodox. Uh, yes. They're usually very similar on some of these topics, but um, they have a they have a view as well. So that's that's the way I would kind of frame that issue of authority. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I I think the way that I think about it, it just to kind of summarize what you said there is that Scripture is the foundation, you know, for tradition, like. Tradition, I think of as like, I have a deference for that. And yeah. it has a level of authority for me. Like when I'm talking to a Jehovah's Witness about the Trinity, or if I'm talking to an LDS member about the Trinity or the Incarnation, I'm going to refer to tradition and scripture, but scripture is underneath the tradition. I'm going to have a conversation with with a progressive Christian about marriage. I'm going to talk about, well, this is how the church has historically always understood this issue and how it's interpreted these passages. So classical Protestantism is not saying tradition is of no authority. Right. They're saying, we're saying the scripture is supreme authority and where tradition departs from scripture I depart from tradition. Would, do you think that would be a fair summary? I think that's right on target. I mean, uh, talking with a skeptic recently who believed that the Gospels were anonymous, I, you know, I brought up Irenaeus and Papias. I brought up church tradition and the church fathers. Um, I think that there are times where, because of this debate between Protestants and Catholics, uh, there is, as you have suggested, the idea on the part of some Protestants that tradition is bad. No, it it is a it has authority. It is valuable. So I think you're right on target. Yes. So let's move into kind of another sticky issue of disagreement or difference between us as Protestants and and our Roman Catholic friends. And this is the issue of salvation. Now, the the common idea that I hear that at um, many Protestants will characterize Catholics as believing in salvation by works. And, and if you talk to an informed Catholic, a thoughtful Catholic, a Catholic convert, they will often tell you, no, we believe in salvation by faith. And so it's a little confusing. Yeah. You know, what is it exactly that separates us um, yeah. as, as Protestants from Catholics when it comes to salvation. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's that second important issue that comes up. Um, I, th I think one way of kind of framing this issue, Krista, is that Catholics and Protestants um, believe in salvation by grace. They believe that it, it comes through faith, but there is some very sharp differences relating to the place of human works and human cooperation. Uh, again, I like to quote the Catholic Catechism because I, I have no wish at all to misrepresent uh, the position. 
Uh, here I'm reading part three, The Life of Christ. Uh, there's discussion of grace and justification. It reads, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted us through baptism. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. It has for its goal the glory of God uh, and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. It is the most excellent work uh, of God's mercy. Now, um, I think the way I would uh, put them side by side is I would say this, that uh, I think from reading the Catholic Catechism, a person is justified by grace, but that grace comes through the sacraments of the Church, principally baptism. Uh, that grace thus enables a person to have faith in Christ, uh, and yet um, they believe that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ, but that process is completed through works of loving obedience. Now that's where the that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. That's when it gets uh, controversial. Uh, but again, the the idea is that Catholics tend to view justification and sanctification as one thing. Classical Protestantism makes a very sharp distinction between justification and sanctification. The Protestant view is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works. And yet, uh, that saving grace will work in us in such a way as uh, to want to please God and uh, uh, to, to love Him. Uh, through our our life. And so Calvin and Luther were fond of the statement that faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. It's accompanied, or as Luther might say, pregnant with good works. So there is uh, a lot of similarity, but there's also tension there. Some Protestants would say, well, uh, the Catholic view is you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. And I think there is some some point of, of tension there. So, you, so again, that question of salvation becomes very important. Yeah, and I think that it would be a mistake. Sometimes I hear um, Roman Catholic friends kind of lampoon us as Protestants and say, well, we when we say that we're saved by faith alone, what we're saying is that works don't matter at all. Right. And that, well, once you pray the magical sinner's prayer, you're in and then, you know, you don't have to do anything. And I think mm -hmm. that that is also a mistake. Yes. Uh, that is not an accurate reflection of what classical Protestants believe. We would say that there is definitely like we're coming in, you know, that there is this um, judicial idea of God declaring us. Um, saved and and not guilty of our sins because our punishment has been put on Jesus at the cross. Right. But we are in that courtroom and declared a child child of God. We're declared in the family of God. And yet then we have to live in the Father's household according to the law of Christ. And yeah. we do that, you know, as a, a, an act of gratitude for what God has done for us. But it's it's tricky, you know, we're we're kind yeah. of getting into 
deep nuances of things right of you know what contribution do the works make and you know how important are they and you know how important and vital is that fruit to be manifest in our lives as christians what you called sanctification yeah. um you know and does that have a a role in our salvation or is it just kind of the cherry on the top whereas i think our catholic friends would say no it's a continuum of all the same things yeah. yes you are saved by faith but the whole thing is faith to faith faith from beginning to end to the end of your life it's all faith and all of the things that you do by faith or humble obedience is part of your salvation past present and future so we're we're deep in the weeds here of well yeah. we're kind of saying some similar things here I think you're right, uh, you know, and a, a Catholic philosopher that uh, I have read and appreciated very much is Peter Kraft. He, he is a Catholic philosopher at Boston College, written many books. Um, you know, he takes the position that Catholics and Protestants have made some progress in this question of justification. Now, again, that's very controversial, and there are many Protestants who would disagree with it. Of course, out of the 1990s came uh, the Catholics and evangelicals together. There were some uh, Protestant evangelicals who, who affirmed it. There were other Protestant evangelicals who felt that it was uh, dead wrong. Um, uh, and yet, this is a point you've made earlier, and, and that is that if we think about Christianity, if we think about historic Christianity as being a set of beliefs, a collection of values, and a way of life, Catholics and Protestants have a lot of beliefs in common. And then these very, uh, again, seemingly intractable difficulties. Uh, but we share a lot of values, uh, marriage, uh, life, uh, those things are critical. Uh, and then uh, a way of life, a way, as you have suggested, a way of, of living. And so uh, this remains, uh, it remains a tension. Uh, there are debates you could listen to on all sides. Uh, there are uh, Protestants who take uh, uh, issues with this issue, and, and it's not an easy one. It is, it is complex. We are in the weeds, and I think the best uh, way of doing that is to read the statements of faith by the Protestants. If you're a Reformed Baptist or if you're a Lutheran or a Presbyterian, read your confessions of faith, then read the read the catechisms. And I think you're right. There are times where Protestants misrepresent Catholics, but there are also times where Catholics misrepresent Protestants. Yeah. And it, it takes time. The golden rule of apologetics is try to attempt to treat other people's beliefs the way you want yours treated. doesn't mean you agree with them, uh, but it does mean that you try to treat them fairly, accurately, even-handedly. And then, of course, an absolute necessity, you treat them charitably. Well, that's a great setup for our third kind of area of difference between us and our Catholic friends, because this is one that I think is probably maybe possibly the most emotional, the most volatile um, that people, you know, who are Protestants and particularly certain streams of Protestants have very strong feelings about the Catholic view of Mary. 
And so we want to kind of wade into that carefully, thoughtfully. Um, but many of us have concerns when we see how Catholics talk about Mary, actions that they that they perform in front of pictures or icons or statues of Mary. And yeah. this is confusing to us, yeah. quite frankly, um, to many of us as Protestants. So maybe I, I know you've written a, a whole book on Mary. Um, so maybe let's begin by trying to help us understand the Catholic position of how they see Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Again, reading uh, from the Catholic Catechism this morning, uh, the Catholic Church recognizes what it may call three types of honor. Uh, and it, here you have the Latin terminology, you know, the theology of the Roman Catholic Church was Latin for more than a thousand years. And so uh, we have key terms here. Those three terms with regard to the honor uh, that's accorded to God, the honor that's accorded to uh, the saints, uh, and then to Mary. Uh, you have dulia, and dulia is honor accorded to the saints. So these are people who have distinguished themselves. These are people who have uh, uh, engaged in the Catholic virtues and have made significant contributions to the church. Uh, a couple of my favorite saints are St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Anselm. These are those great Catholic philosophers. Uh, but they're accorded honor. Uh, now, Mary, on the other hand, uh, they view her as receiving special honor or called hyperdulia. Uh, and that's accorded to Mary. She's viewed as the mother of God. Uh, the child in her womb was God in human flesh. Now, uh, with regard to the, to God, God alone receives what is called in Latin latria, and this is worship. This is not honor uh, the way dulia and hyperdulia is. This is true worship, and they say that it's given only to God, uh, and therefore the official position of the Catholic Church is Catholics do not worship the Virgin Mary, and they get very uh, riled up when you raise that issue. But I also want to give a quotation. Uh, by the way, I, I, one of the reasons I enjoy reading the Catholic Catechism is, of course, to try to understand. But also, uh, the, uh, the Bible is quoted throughout the Catechism. Uh, most quotations come from Scripture. But then the second most come from St. Augustine and, and then very closely Thomas Aquinas. Well, here's a quotation from St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, again, arguably one of the greatest philosophers, uh, uh, not just Christian, but in, in the world itself. In his uh, book, Summa Theologiae, uh, he's talking here about uh, this, this distinction between uh, worshiping God and honor, giving Mary uh, honor um, or special honor, he says, because of her unique relationship to Christ in salvation history, however, the special degree of devotion due to Mary has traditionally been called hyperdulia, while Latria is owed to her son by reason of unity of his divine and human natures in the person of the Word made flesh. Hyperdulia is due to Mary as truly his mother. Now, 
this is uh, very careful reasoning and very careful thinking. Uh, but there are many Protestants who raise issue, and I'm one of them. I have uh, I've been to some places in the world uh, where there's claims that Mary uh, appeared as an apparition, and I part of the book that I wrote with my colleague at uh, at um, the Christian Research Institute, Elliot Miller, he dealt more with the Mariology issue. I dealt with the apparitions, but. There is a practical issue here. Many Protestants, and again, I shared their concern, um, is that there doesn't appear to be any practical difference. Uh, there are more people who take pilgrimages to Lourdes in France than either um, Mecca by the Muslims or to even Jerusalem. So Mary is a very significant part of the uh, the Catholic tradition, the Catholic theology. And I would go further and say that in some ways this is deeply troubling because there is a parallel between between Mary uh, and Jesus. You know, Jesus is, is born without sin, but Mary also lives a sinless life. Um, you know, uh, Mary... Uh, that, that's what the Catholics teach. I just want to clarify. Yeah, that they, yeah, that, that they believe exactly that Mary right. also had a sinless life. You, that's not your position. That's definitely not my position. Yeah. Uh, but you see this parallel, and, and Protestant theologians have raised it, that some of the, the titles and the prerogatives that Mary have tend to, uh, you know, compare to, to Christ. Uh, sinlessness, uh, you know, Jesus's... Uh, Assumed, assumed bodily into heaven or ascends into heaven, marry something very similar. So those are issues in which people become, um, uh, you know, it, it's a big challenge. And, and I guess I would say this, some Protestants would say, look, if you don't worship Mary, then why doesn't the Catholic Church take greater effort in policing its ranks and, and explaining this with greater uh, force so that you know, people don't seem to blur the categories of Latria and Dulia and Hyperdulia. I think that what you're saying is so important because um, the this is the thing is that I, you find I find when I talk to an informed Catholic, and this kind of harkens me back to a point that I made in the previous teaching, is that we have to be aware that there's a lot of different kinds of Catholics. There can be cultural Catholics, Catholics, you know, who just go to church on the holidays or are are Catholic because of their extended family or their grandmother is Catholic. Um, yes. There are Catholics who uh, are converts to Catholicism from right. Protestantism. Those those often talk differently than the cultural Catholics, the Catholics who are born into it. There's Catholics who go to church, but they don't hold beliefs that are consistent with the church. Right. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of Catholics. And so when we talk about the Mary issue, I think what's difficult for me is that my thoughtful Catholic convert friends will will be very quick with me on those definitions that you shared. I'm glad that you shared those. And they'll say, well, we don't worship Mary. That's a straw man. 
we don't worship the saints. It's honor yes. and high honor. Right. I get that. I get the technical definition. But when I look at the average Catholic in the pew, it certainly seems like they think that they worship Mary. And when you have these, yeah. these, um, and here's where we're going back to the first issue of tradition, you know, and you're saying things like, well, according to the church, Mary was assumed into heaven. Well, we don't really yeah. have that as a biblical teaching, but it's a teaching from tradition without the Bible standing underneath it, you know? Yeah. And so this is for me the the tension, the wrestle of I want to go with my Catholic friends and I appreciate their views of Mary and that they they teach us to respect her and to yeah. to look to her as an example of of discipleship. I did a three-part series on Mary uh for Christmas. Wow. And so like please don't write to me if you're Catholic and think I devalue Mary. Like yeah. I did a 3-hour teaching series about Mary. I went through every single passage about Mary in the New Testament and looking at that in detail. So I I honor Mary, but what concerns me is that in the practical realm yeah. it it seems to show up differently. And I want to remind people of your book, uh, The Cult of the Virgin, which we just looked up, is still available on Amazon. It's from yeah. 1992. It's the book that you co-authored with Elliot Miller right. back when you were at the Christian Research Institute, The Cult of the Virgin. And you went to Yugoslavia and and researched the, the Mary apparitions there. And it does seem like there are people people flying under the banner of Catholicism that go beyond just honoring Mary. Yeah. Uh, two, two points that I think are so critical here. I appreciate you talking about the different types of Catholics. I mean, you have you also have theological liberal Catholics. You have Catholics who are part of the New Age movement. That's why you go to the catechism. Uh, you know, that is the statement of what Catholics believe. And I take I take Roman Catholics seriously when they make the distinction between Latria, given only to God, uh, the saints Dulia, uh, Mary Hyperdulia, special honor. And like you, I think oftentimes as a Protestant, I'm a little uneasy about Mary because of the exalted view I think she's given in the Catholic Church. Protestants kind of ignore her. And I don't think we should. I I I think that Mary um, is an example, a powerful example, like the Apostle Paul or Peter, uh, in terms of her her devotion and her faith. But these are, you know, when you come to the elements of comparing Mariology to Christology, and again, I'm I'm many people think that I uh, you know have uh, I. I'm very ecumenical. I like to I like to bring Christians together. I like to have discussions where we look at truth, but we also look at the unity of what we believe. You know, uh, again, Jesus was born without sin. Mary was conceived without original sin. Jesus lived a sinless life, but so did Mary. Uh, Jesus, following his resurrection, ascended into heaven. Mary was assumed bodily into heaven. 
Jesus is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve, Jesus is the king, Mary is the queen. Some Protestants look at that, and while they respect the distinction that's made between Latria, Dulia, and Hyperdulia, and that, that the triune God alone is to receive worship, some people look at that and say, Mary seems in the Catholic uh, context to be more like Christ than she is like us. Now, uh, again, the Catholic Church, they do not worship Mary, and uh, we want to take them at their word, but you've raised the question of, of practicality. And uh, again, I have met many people uh, who were uh, devoted Catholics uh, and prayed the Lord's Prayer and worshiped the Triune God, but the devotion that was given to Mary is is puzzling to Protestants, uh, off-putting to Protestants. And uh, so that does remain a, a that kind of third element of potentially intractable problems. Uh, you know, having said all of that, let me, you know, let me make the point. I have, uh, I have benefited from greatly from Catholic thinkers through the centuries. I mentioned Augustine is number one in my book, uh, but there are lots of other Catholic uh, scholars. And, and again, Augustine lived at a time uh, where Catholicism uh, advanced and expanded. There are some people who would say, well, maybe uh, Augustine would not agree with all of the things in present-day Catholicism. But if you look at Anselm, who was a Catholic, Aquinas that was a Catholic, Pascal that was a Catholic, those people are brilliant thinkers, and uh, I share so much in common with them that my favorite thinkers outside of the New Testament, Augustine has to be number one, but right behind that would be people like Athanasius um, and uh, Pascal, C.S. Lewis, so Catholics and Protestants have a they share a lot of common ground. I'm so glad you said that because you know I find many Catholic thinkers to be thoughtful. I'm grateful for ethicists, political philosophers who are Catholics. Very yeah. they, I, and I think you know we're trying to walk that tightrope of saying, hey, we have real differences, but we also have these commonalities, and we can appreciate you know some of the scholarship that's in the Catholic tradition. Um, so in going back to our original question, are Catholics Christians? I'm going to tell you my answer to that question, and mm -hmm. then I'd love to hear your response to it. Sure. My answer to that is, is are Catholics Christians is maybe. More data is needed because, yeah. like we said, there are many different kinds of Catholics. When yeah. I meet a Catholic, I mean, maybe not in the first five minutes, but eventually I might want to talk about with them or inquire, like, what is their understanding of their faith? What What is their understanding of what saves them? This is what I mean by more data is needed. Um, and what do you think about that answer? And, or how would you answer that question? I, I think that's a... I, I think that's a very fair-minded uh, comment. Um, look, Protestants, Protestants have very critical views, generally speaking, of, of Catholicism, especially on authority, uh, the issue of justification, Mary, and other issues. There are other issues, the sacraments of the church, etc. 
Um, but having said that, um, you know, I, I know Protestants who would say, well, um, I think the Catholic Church is, it, it's not the true church, but it is a true church. There are other Protestants who would say, well, um, I don't think it's a, a true church, but it has significant, it contains significant truth. And then there are other Protestants I've met who said Catholicism is a cult, it's anti-Christian. Um, I, I think what we need to do is to look very carefully at what Catholics teach. Um, and I think you're trying to be fair. When I give a talk on Catholicism, uh, sometimes I'm invited to give a, a talk to some of the apologists at Biola University, and they will ask me to kind of comment be, uh, as to how apologetics how should an apologist view this view? Because so many of the great apologists and great thinkers have been Catholic. And what I tell them is, look, uh, whether you agree with me or anybody else, there's there's a there's a tension I hope I can bring to you. On, on one hand, I hope you will see the deep common ground. I mean, whenever I read the Nicene Creed, or even better, when I recite the Nicene Creed at church, I ask myself, man, that's a huge slice of Christianity. Uh, Orthodox affirm it, Catholics affirm it, we as Protestants affirm it, my Anglican uh, church I attend, we affirm it. Uh, that's a huge slice of Christianity. On the other hand, um, I think you have to look at the significance of these three major areas of difference. And I, I, you know, I point out that while Vatican II says that Protestants are separated brethren and takes, you know, a much more accommodating view, if you go back to the Council of Trent, um, you know, the anathemas are very strong, and some of them are, are very much pointed directly at classical Protestantism. So I leave people with the thought that look, I hope, I hope you will weigh the common ground and weigh the sharp differences and and then take a position that you believe you can you can defend uh and i would say uh, don't overlook either one of them the differences are not going to go away i don't think um and yet there is so much common ground uh personally i think protestants have learned so much about the pro-life position from catholics and, um, you know, uh, two of my favorite thinkers, Luther's one of them, Luther and Thomas Aquinas have differences on justification, but sometimes the differences are exaggerated. And so, you know, I, I think you're, you're doing good work here, and I hope people will continue uh, a, a, a book I haven't mentioned that people can pursue it. Uh, I had two friends, Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, who wrote a book uh, evangelicals and Catholics. That's a very fair-minded book, um, reviewed by critics of Catholicism, reviewed by devoted Catholics. Very fair-minded book. That's great, and we'll have uh, we'll make sure to put links to to these things in the in the show description for people. That's a wonderful resource. I'm glad you mentioned that. Also, want to mention if they want just a chapter-long treatment, um, kind of on a related issue, is in your book. Christianity cross-examined. You have a chapter, kind of on your ecumenical approach, and very charitable, you know, 
approach to looking at Christendom as a whole. This is a great follow-up to one of my favorite books, Without a Doubt. Um, This kind of a 20 questions book. This is your follow-up to that book and covering more questions that people ask about the faith. It's a wonderful resource. As we close out, Ken, one final question, just from a strategic standpoint, what do you think are one or two common mistakes that you see that Protestants make when engaging with our Catholic friends and family? Like, you know, I when you see people make these mistakes, you're like, oh, they could avoid that if only I could sit down with them for a few minutes and kind of help them. Like, don't do it this way. Yeah, I, I think that's that. That is a common situation. You know what? What I often like to say, Krista, is uh, truth, unity, and charity. Uh, I think truth has to come first, no doubt about it. We can't compromise our 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 convictions. Uh, but you know, charity means uh, that we're respectful to that person. Uh, but it extends beyond that, and and that is to try to get it right, to try to get their views right, uh, and then and then being charitable. Um, you know, we believe that uh, that love is the central virtue of the Christian faith, and so I think trying to be uh, truthful, don't don't back down, don't hold any punches. But make sure that you're accurate. Make sure uh, you're looking at these issues. And what I like to say when I teach logic is always ask yourself the question, what's the best argument on the other side? Mm-hmm. So what it, what is the best argument that the Catholics have? Have I understood it properly? And how would I want to be approached? So I, I have a lot of uh, great Catholic friends. They've taught me a lot. Uh, they've challenged me. They have corrected me at times. Uh, I hope I've challenged and maybe corrected them as well. So, you know, um, uh, persuasion in apologetic context, whether it's uh, secular Christian or whether it's within Christendom itself, you know, I, I think we have to approach these issues thoughtfully. I think we have to approach them carefully uh, and graciously. And um, I, I've made mistakes, and I ask the Lord to help me to to treat all people with dignity and respect. That's so good. So, I think you just nailed it there. Of like, one of the most common mistakes people make is not taking the time to really understand the best arguments on the other side, not taking the time to really accurately be able to listen to understand, and then to speak back to the person. Let me see if I'm understanding what you're saying, exactly. um, because so often I'm right there with you. Like common mistake I see is that Protestants just haven't taken that time. And so then they're reacting or responding to a position that isn't even what Catholics actually believe. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. I really appreciate that tip. Well, thank you, Ken, for doing this with me. Yeah. You've been super helpful. I think this has been a great conversation. I think it's going to really, uh, I think we're going to get some good feedback about this, that we that we help people kind of understand the two sides a little bit better. Thank you so much. Well, keep up the great work. You, uh, you're you a dynamo in, in teaching, and uh, I 
enjoyed the time we worked together, and I'm a big fan of yours, Krista. So well, that's very kind. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ken. Thank you very much. Well, everyone, that's a wrap. Um, I really hope that you found our conversation helpful. Make sure you're following Ken Samples over through Reasons to Believe and all of the very fine work he is doing there as the staff theologian working on questions related to creation, the image of God, God's general and special revelation, and even a few of his World War II stories. We got to have those in the mix as well. He loves the Dodgers, the Lakers. He blogs about it all. So go follow Ken and all of his work. He's got a podcast. It will be worth your time. You will be educated. You will be a careful thinker and you will be better for it. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this teaching series on Catholicism. Please let me know uh, your feedback about it. I look forward to hearing from you. Good night and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.